Hey everyone, I'm Zach. I'm the lead pastor here at Restore. Thanks so much for checking out this week's podcast. I hope that it encourages you and inspires you, and I hope that you have some community around you to talk through these truths and concepts with. If you don't have community like that, we would love to invite you to be a part of Restore. You can get all the information about our church at restoreaustin.org. We would love to see you soon at one of our Sunday gatherings, and we hope you enjoy this week's podcast. I need to start this morning with an important disclaimer. During the first few minutes of the message today, I'm going to be telling a story which includes material that could be triggering or it might be inappropriate for kids. Now, I won't be detailing anything explicit, but this story is centered around gender-based violence, the one that I'm about to tell. And if you would like to let your kids go do something else or come back and watch this later or just skip this message entirely, that is totally up to you. This is not my story, but I am sharing it with permission. Many of you know C.G. Wagner, our community pastor here at Restore. In addition to being one of our pastors, C.G. is the founder and CEO of a nonprofit called Louder Than Silence. LTS is an incredible organization whose mission, as you can see, is to empower all survivors of sexual violence to seek help and healing. They do this primarily through workshops and support groups, mentoring, education, advocacy, and also by paying for survivors to get EMDR therapy, which is an expensive but vitally important treatment specifically designed for folks who have been through extreme trauma. LTS is actually one of our community partners here at Restore, and we highlighted their incredible work just a couple of weeks ago on our social media. But even if you know CG, you may not know her story. You see, CG is a survivor herself. And like most survivors, she experienced years of abuse from multiple perpetrators throughout her life, including from some of the people closest to her. As a young adult, CG was able to work up the courage to seek help, even if she wasn't quite ready or felt safe enough to share every detail just yet. One of the first places CG turned for help was her local church. But tragically, their response was nothing like the Jesus that they claimed to follow. No matter what happened to you, Christians are not supposed to hold grudges, they said. We're sorry this happened, but the Bible says you need to forgive and forget. Actually, nowhere in the Bible does it say that you need to forgive and forget. And for CG, a dismissive, I'm sorry, was anything but helpful. Pseudo-Christian cliches and fake apologies weren't going to get her the help that she needed. Thankfully, with the support of friends and loved ones, CG was able to get out of her abusive situation and begin the long journey of healing. Years later, in 2018, CG was driving home from an EMDR therapy appointment. And a realization hit her like a ton of bricks. She thought to herself, why am I paying, literally paying, to undo the damage of someone else's wrongdoing against me? She was making restitution for someone else's sin against her. Tragically, CG is not alone in this. The average lifetime cost of surviving sexual violence is around $122,000. That includes therapy, medical bills, legal bills, loss of income, and more. CG didn't need someone to tell her, I'm sorry. She needed real, tangible help. 
This is almost always the case when oppression and abuse of all types are inflicted upon someone. When we have sinned against someone else, just saying, I'm sorry, isn't enough. Because an apology without making amends, either by changing behavior or restoring what is broken, is really no apology at all. Now, we've all experienced this. Maybe like CG, you've experienced abuse. And when you finally worked up the courage to confront your abuser, all you got was a half-hearted, I'm sorry. No actual change, no attempt at restitution, just a fake apology. Maybe you've had a significant other be unfaithful. You caught them, you found a text message, or, or you got a call about something, you found a, a message on social media, you confronted them about it, and they just gave you a, I'm sorry. Maybe you've experienced discrimination because of your age, race, gender, or sexual orientation. Maybe you've been through economic exploitation. That is the oppression of the impoverished folks that scripture talks so much about. Or maybe it was just being hurt by someone that you really cared about and subsequently realizing that even though you really cared about them, they did not really care about you. Whatever happened, you knew as soon as those empty words came out of their mouth that just saying, I'm sorry, wasn't enough. This is why the biblical concept of repentance is so important. You see, to repent means to change your mind and to change your purpose, your way of being. It is the realization of our failure to love God and love our neighbor, the thing that Jesus said was most important in the world. It's that realization and accompanied by the decision to do everything we can to turn away from our unloving behavior and to make restitution for the pain that was caused by it. Repentance is often depicted as someone walking down a path and then deciding to make a 180-degree turn, a full about face, and start walking in the other direction. When we are walking down a path of selfishness, repentance looks like turning around and heading down the path of neighbor love. When we are walking down a path of building our own little kingdoms up, repentance looks like turning around and pursuing the building of the kingdom of God. It's completely possible to be walking down the path of selfishness, hurt our neighbor, pause to say, I'm sorry, and then keep right on walking in the same direction. There's no repentance there, only an attempt to save face or avoid consequences. When we have sinned against someone else, saying I'm sorry isn't how we experience true reconciliation, the bringing together of people. Because listen, any attempt at reconciliation without repentance and restitution is really just manipulation. Any attempt at reconciliation without true repentance and restitution is just manipulation. This morning, we're wrapping up our teaching series called Kingdom Incarnate by looking at the story of a man who demonstrated true and life-changing repentance against some pretty overwhelming odds. This is a story of a guy named Zacchaeus. And over the last few years, it has become one of my very favorite stories in all of Scripture. As I put on Facebook and YouTube in the comments, it is so much more than the story of a short guy who climbed a tree because he wanted to see Jesus, if you remember the old rhyme from Sunday school. 
So if you have a Bible or a way to access it on your device, you can turn with me to Luke's account of Jesus' life, chapter 19, starting in verse 1. The verses will also be on the screen. Luke sets the scene for us in verse 1. Here's what he says. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Now, if you've been with us the last few weeks, you've probably heard me say that Jesus, at this point in his life, is in the middle of a very long journey. He's been traveling south from Galilee, where he spent most of his life, to Jerusalem, where he will spend his final few days on earth. This has become known, those final few days, as Holy Week or Passion Week. And actually, we're starting a brand new teaching series next Sunday that will take us all the way up through Easter. The Passion will cover all of the major events of Jesus' final week. The triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus flipping tables in the temple, the Last Supper, the cross, and then, of course, the resurrection. So in this story, Jesus is nearing the end of his journey from Galilee. See, Jericho is only about 15 miles outside of Jerusalem. But this part of the excursion was treacherous. It was quite literally uphill, this last part, with an elevation increasing by 3,300 feet in just 15 miles. So as travelers made their way up, they were often waylaid by thieves who were lying in wait behind corners or around rocks, waiting as they climbed uphill. This, is, this road from Jer- Jericho to Jerusalem is the site of one of the most famous stories in the Bible, the Good Samaritan. If you remember, that is exactly what happens to the man in the story. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, notice it says going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Jesus is about to go up from Jericho to Jerusalem. As a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So this was a treacherous 15 miles. And because of the difficulty of the journey and the desire to not be on a dangerous road in the daytime, most travelers often uh, on their way to Jerusalem stopped in Jericho the night before, and then they would kind of wake up the next morning and tackle those 15 miles, the last uh, 15 miles the next day. Jericho made for a perfect stopover because as best we can tell from ancient descriptions and excavations, it was a beautiful and affluent city at this point. Its location made it a perfect center for trade routes, and its industry brought in enough money for the city to be filled with amenities like bathhouses and banquet halls and even beautiful gardens. Now, I want to pause here for a second. I want to say something. You may be wondering why I just spent like five minutes talking about the background of verse 1. And I get it. It's a lot of information, especially considering that none of it is explicitly stated in that seven-word opening sentence. But here's the thing the original audience would have known everything I just told you without even thinking about it. Luke didn't have to spell it out. It would have been weird if he had said all those things because these folks lived and breathed these contexts and cultures. As someone who diligently teaches through the scripture each week, I believe it is my job to do everything I can to bridge the gap between Jesus's first century world and our 21st century world. And to put it bluntly, I don't think we can truly understand the truth of Scripture without understanding the context and culture in which it was written. So if you're wondering, that's why I always take time to explain what the first century audience would have known intuitively. So if you're ever interested in resources that can help you learn more about this stuff beyond Sundays, just let me know. I'm a huge nerd about it. I have lots of books and articles and things I would be happy to share with you. Okay, back to the story. So Jesus has decided to stop and spend the night in Jericho before his final leg of this journey to Jerusalem. 
Now we're going to meet the other main character in this story. Verse 2. A man was there by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was wealthy. Luke tells us three things about Zacchaeus in this sentence. Number one, he was Jewish. We know that because his name, Zacchaeus, is a Hebrew name. Number two, he's a chief tax collector, not just a regular tax collector. He's a chief tax collector. And then number three, he's wealthy. Now, because of these characteristics, Zacchaeus is like a walking juxtaposition. Being Jewish and wealthy would have meant prominence in that culture. But being not just a tax collector, but a chief tax collector, means he would have also been universally despised. So he walked around with both of these parts of his life contrasting and playing against each other. See, tax collectors were very looked down upon. Jewish tax collectors like Zacchaeus worked for the occupying Roman government, those who had taken over uh, Jerusalem and the Jewish people. So the Jewish people viewed tax collecting as stealing money from their own people and giving it to the enemy. And so tax collectors were essentially excommunicated from the Jewish community. Now, Zacchaeus wasn't even just an ordinary tax collector, as we just said. He was the chief. Now, that means he oversaw and employed all the tax collectors in Jericho, which was actually a regional tax center for the Romans at this point. So basically, here's how it worked. Rome would sell the tax collecting rights in any given area to the highest bidder. The contract would stipulate that a certain amount of money had to come back to Rome, but the contract holder, this chief tax collector, could keep anything else that they got for themselves. This made it easy for people like Zacchaeus to get very rich very quickly using very nefarious means. So to put it simply... Zacchaeus ran a highly profitable organization inside of a ruthless and unregulated industry. Under the Romans, first century taxation was basically a pyramid scheme, and Zacchaeus was very near to the top. Like far too many modern businessmen, he made a ton of money off of exploiting people for economic gain. But there is more to Zacchaeus than meets the eye. He hears that this famous teacher, Jesus of Nazareth, is going to visit his town. And Zacchaeus wants to see him. Verse 3. He wanted to see who Jesus was. But because he was short, he could not see over the crowd. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore fig tree to see him, since Jesus was coming that way. When Jesus reached the spot, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. So he came down at once and welcomed him gladly. All the people saw this and began to mutter, he has gone to be the guest of a sinner. Now, even though Zacchaeus was a rich and powerful man, he was searching for something more. He needed something else in his life. And that's why he worked so hard to see Jesus. And that's why Luke says that Zacchaeus, quote, came down at once and welcomed Jesus gladly into his home. But as you notice, not everyone is happy about Jesus spending the night at Zacchaeus' house. Now, in addition to being all the things I talked about a moment ago, Jericho was also home to some of the most powerful priests in the region. So for Jesus' one-night layover in the town, we would expect him to stay in the home of a priest, or at least just a religiously devout commoner. But that's not what happens. Zacchaeus wanted to catch a glimpse of this famous Jesus, but he ends up getting way more than he bargained for. Jesus is coming to stay at his house. 
The word here for stay is more literally translated to unpack your bags. This was going to be a stay that included a night's sleep and at least a couple of meals. Now, this is important because eating and spending the night in someone else's house was basically a full endorsement of that person and their lifestyle. Here's how author Malcolm Smith says it. To eat with someone was called table fellowship and meant that the persons eating at the table now stood in covenant solidarity with each other. For Jesus to eat with tax collectors was not a social blunder done in ignorance. It was not a political gaffe of a newcomer to religious politics. He ate with them intentionally in a deliberate public act, sending a clear message that he knew could not be misunderstood by anyone. He was announcing that he was the friend of tax collectors and sinners. He was standing in solidarity with them, declaring a covenant of friendship. He sat there by choice and so accepted the shame, rejection, and hatred directed to them as his own. The renowned New Testament scholar Daryl Bach puts it simply, in this culture, eating with a person who had ill-gotten gain made one a partner in crime. Jesus was assuming Zacchaeus's sin and shame onto himself as he walked into that home. Now we see the people watching and grumbling as Jesus goes to Zacchaeus' house. They're not just being petty. Jesus is endorsing and entering into a covenant relationship with a high-level criminal in their mind who has been oppressing and extorting them for years. Now, if the people had been in the large crowd following Jesus just a few days before, they would also have witnessed Jesus' interaction with someone called the rich young ruler. If you don't remember this story, a rich young ruler approaches Jesus and asks what he must do to have salvation, what he needs to inherit eternal life. Jesus says, sell everything you have and give it to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come and follow me. When he heard this, he, the rich young ruler, became very sad because he was very wealthy. Jesus looked at him and said, how hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? So Jesus, just days before, had just finished teaching that it is almost impossible for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. How much more so for a rich man who accumulated his wealth in such sinful and oppressive ways. It seems like Jesus is contradicting himself here by entering into covenant relationship with Zacchaeus. At the very least, he is setting himself up to be embarrassed by staying in the home of one of the most infamous people in Jericho. But then, something truly incredible happens. Verse 8, Zacchaeus stood up and said to the Lord, Look, Lord, here and now I give half of my possessions to the poor. And if I have cheated anybody out of anything, I will pay back four times that amount. In front of everyone, Zacchaeus has this radical change of heart. We know that because he has a radical change of behavior. Now, I want to say that again because I really don't want you to miss it. We know that Zacchaeus had a radical change of heart because he had a radical change of behavior. You know what Zacchaeus doesn't do? He doesn't just wave at all the grumbling people he's exploited and say, I'm sorry, as he escorts Jesus into his house. He doesn't house the savior of the world for a night and then go right back to extorting people. 
He also doesn't hide behind the cultural norms of his day. Listen to this from Scott McKnight. When he, Zacchaeus, what he, Zacchaeus, collects above the taxes owed to the Roman Empire is his to keep. That is how the system works. Tax collectors at the time of Jesus were notorious for fraud, and that is why the gospel writers list them with sinners. It would have been so easy for Zacchaeus to say, look, I know it's not great, but this is how the system works. But Zacchaeus doesn't do that. He doesn't offer an an empty apology. He doesn't hide behind the system. He doesn't make excuses. Zacchaeus repents. He repents. He changes his mind and he changes his purpose. His repentance manifests itself in changed behavior and an attempt to make real, tangible restitution for the pain he has caused. What Zacchaeus commits to do here giving away half of his possessions to the poor and paying back anyone he has exploited four times over is actually greater than anything that the Roman or Jewish law would suggest. He is going above and beyond in his commitment to restitution. To the people in the crowd, the only thing more shocking than Zacchaeus' change of heart is Jesus' response. Verse nine, Jesus said to him, today, Salvation has come to this house because this man, too, is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. You know what blows me away about this passage? Nothing is mentioned about Zacchaeus' beliefs. He doesn't pray a prayer. He doesn't walk down an aisle. He doesn't even acknowledge that we know of that Jesus is the Messiah or the Savior. And yet, Jesus emphatically declares that Zacchaeus has received salvation. How? Why? Because Jesus knows that Zacchaeus had a radical change of behavior, and he knows that that radical change of behavior comes from a radically changed heart. Zacchaeus' faith is authenticated and demonstrated by his repentance. That's how Jesus knows. That's why he says today salvation has come to this house. Zacchaeus' faith is authenticated and demonstrated by his repentance. Compare Zacchaeus to the rich young ruler with me for a moment. Both of them are wealthy. Both of them hold powerful positions in society. But the rich young ruler is someone who dutifully keeps God's law. While Zacchaeus is such a notorious sinner that he's been completely ostracized from the community. Jesus tells the rich young ruler, sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And the rich young ruler walks away upset. Jesus tells Zacchaeus he's coming to spend the night in his home. And Zacchaeus volunteers to give away half of his possessions to the poor and pay back four times anything he has stolen. Jesus responds to the rich young ruler's actions by saying, how hard is it for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God? But he responds to Zacchaeus' actions by saying, today, salvation has come to your house. The rich young ruler might have followed the law. He might have checked all the boxes, but he did not repent. He didn't make a 180 degree turn. He hung his head and he kept on walking down the same path he had walked down before. But Zacchaeus, Zacchaeus turned around. He turned around. He chose a different path. 
He made restitution. He repented and he began walking in the way of Jesus. So what does all this mean for us today? What does it look like for you and I to take the path of Zacchaeus instead of the one the rich young ruler kept on walking down? Well, I believe the answer for us is exceedingly practical. Many of you know that I'm a big fan of AA, Alcoholics Anonymous. I've been to a handful of meetings over the years and supported loved ones walking through the program. Now, even though they are fully inclusive of people of all faiths and people of no faith, AA is unapologetically Christian in its foundation. The big book, which is kind of the de facto textbook for AA, has an entire chapter dedicated to building a connection with God. Even the 12-step program itself is based on admitting our own powerlessness and turning our lives over to God in order to experience restoration. Now, there are a ton of great things about the program, but I think my favorite part is the combination of steps eight and nine. Here's what they say. I made a list of all persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. Then made direct amends to such people wherever possible except when to do so would injure them or others. This is repentance in a nutshell. In fact, I think it's a more biblical and holistic version of repentance than I've heard preached in many churches. This, my friends, is the practical next step I just talked about. I am challenging all of us, myself included, to spend time this week identifying people we have hurt and making amends. I don't want you to just think about it. I want you to actually do it. Grab a legal pad, grab a journal, make a note on your phone, whatever it is. Once you have a way to write things down, prayerfully consider who needs to be on your list. And then, just like the big book and the Bible both say, work to make amends. But a quick word of warning before you start. It's the same warning you will hear in any AA meeting you attend. My friends, you cannot do this on your own. You can't do it on your own. No one can practice true repentance and offer true restitution in their own power. Zacchaeus surely didn't. Before he repented, he had a life-changing experience with the love of Jesus. You remember the story? Jesus calls Zacchaeus down from the tree, embraces him, invites himself into his home, enters into covenant relationship with him, exactly as he is. He loves and embraces Zacchaeus exactly as he is. Then, and only then, does Zacchaeus experience a radical transformation, both inside and out. I love how Philadelphia pastor Eric Mason puts it. He says, the gospel isn't just a message that changes the soul. It is the power of God to change everything. Zacchaeus repents and seeks to make amends with everyone he has wronged. But listen, he doesn't even stop there. He doesn't just commit to bring restitution to those he has personally extorted. He has been so radically changed by the love of Jesus that he decides to help bring restoration to everyone he can. So he gives away half of his possessions to the poor in Jericho. Listen, Jesus' love doesn't just restore Zacchaeus. His love brings restoration to an entire community. 
As Lisa Sharon Harper says, by ministering to Zacchaeus, Jesus lifted economic oppression off the shoulders of an entire town. Wow. When you make your inventory this week, here's my challenge for you. Don't just include those who need restitution because you hurt them personally. Include anyone in your sphere of influence who is in need of restoration, no matter who hurt them, no matter what happened. That's what CG did. After her revelation in the car that day, she knew something needed to change. So she prayed and she asked God to use her to bring restoration to other survivors. And like he always does, God showed up. Louder Than Silence was born. And in just a couple of short years, God has used CG and her team to help bring healing to 28 different survivors through 121 therapy appointments completely paid for, 72 workshop sessions, 17 self-care meetings, and two retreats. I'm telling y'all, if Christians, if, if us, if us as Christians truly allowed the love of Jesus to change us, the world would never be the same. We would see people delivered from guilt and shame like never before giving forgiveness and receiving forgiveness. We would see people who were previously on the margins of society welcomed in, radically included like Zacchaeus. We would see people repenting and making restitution instead of just giving empty apologies. And y'all, we would see entire communities experience restoration as the love of Jesus multiplies its way through families and neighborhoods and cities like yeast working through dough. Because the love of Jesus doesn't just change you. The love of Jesus changes everything. My friends, the love of Jesus doesn't just change you. The love of Jesus changes everything. Jesus' love has the power to restore you and to restore the whole world. So let's make that list. Let's make that list this week. Let's prayerfully consider who we've hurt that we can bring restitution to. And let's prayerfully consider who else might be hurting so that God might use us to bring restoration in their lives as well. You with me? Let's do it. Will you pray with me? God, I thank you. I thank you for Zacchaeus. I thank you for the beautiful, raw faith. I thank you for the demonstration of repentance like few we've ever seen. The radical life change, God. You welcomed him in, you loved him, you embraced him, and because he experienced that love, God, he was never the same. And because he was never the same, Jericho was never the same. The poor, the hurting, the marginalized were never the same. God, you did a work there in Jericho through Zacchaeus. Do a work in us. Do a work in our communities in our cities, in our nation, in our world. God, we give ourselves to you in this work. 
we who have experienced and been radically changed by your love, God, we beg as we make ourselves available, we beg for you to work through us to bring restoration to people who are hurting. God, to awaken them to life, both spiritually and tangibly, that they would experience what you said, God, was the reason you came, that people would experience life and life abundantly. We pray that would be true in our lives and the lives of the people around us. Make it so, dear Lord. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.